Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshtan Kamal, and you're listening to Legalese Podcast. This episode on coronavirus and prisons will be introduced by my guest co-host today, ASU Law Professor Valina Beebe. Those incredible bios that you'll be able to see will be made available a few days after this interview. And Valina, I'll be handing you the rest of this intro. Thank you, Amina. Uh, I'm Valina Beebe. I'm the Deputy Director of our Academy for Justice uh, at ASU and a law professor also at ASU. Uh, I come to this work from a wrongful convictions perspective. I founded and directed the West Virginia Innocence Project, and my work and research is mainly post-conviction litigation, wrongful convictions, prison reform, and drug policy changes. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And the center aims to connect research with policy reform and share expert voices. Uh, And today on this podcast episode, we're fortunate to hear from leaders who are responding to the impact of the coronavirus on our criminal justice system. Uh, We're joined by organizers and public officials, uh, and everyone on this call is concerned about our unprecedented crisis, a spreading virus, how it affects our courts, our jails, and our prisons. This is a rapidly changing situation, and we're fortunate to be joined today by Councilman Carlos Garcia, Assemblyman Pat Nolan, Public Defender Joel Feynman, Community Coordinator Khalil Rushton, and Attorney Kurt Altman. You can find their full biographies on LegalEasePodcast.com, as Amina said, uh, but we'll provide just a brief introduction here for listeners. Pat Nolan is the director of the American Conservative Union Foundation's Center for Criminal Justice Reform. He served in the California State Assembly for 15 years, ultimately serving as California State Assembly Republican leader. Carlos Garcia serves on the Phoenix City Council as representative for District 8 and was elected to this position in 2019. Joel Feynman is the public defender for Pima County. Khalil Rushton is the Smart Justice Community Partnerships Coordinator for the ACLU of Arizona. And Kurt Altman is an attorney and state director of Right on Crime for Arizona and New Mexico. And we welcome all of you to this podcast. Thank you, Valina. So before we dive into the questions, I'm just going to briefly summarize why we're all here today. It is clear that the coronavirus poses a heightened threat in prisons, jails, and immigration detention centers with an outbreak that could spread like wildfire. And we've seen that actually unravel outside of prisons. And there is also a huge risk for prison staff, the incarcerated, and surrounding community. And we've actually already seen it reach prisons. So while releasing inmates could help in such a health crisis like this one, This is only if they have somewhere to go as well. But at this point, it's not just the incarcerated who are worried. Rather, many advocates and healthcare experts are also calling for mass releases to prevent the potentially lethal outbreaks. And as we can see, this has already begun in various prisons across the country. If we're going to talk about flattening the curve, then prisons, jails, and detention centers have to be part of this conversation. So can you all please just give us an idea of some of the issues you're each dealing with at the moment addressing the coronavirus in jails and prisons in Arizona, and what are some obstacles and what are your overall goals? And if you can take us behind the scenes a bit to give us and our audiences some background before we start, that would be wonderful. And we can go around the table for this one, the Zoom table. We can start with uh, Joel. Sure, well, thank you all for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. So our first effort 
was probably very similar to almost everybody else's, which was to get as many of our clients out of jail as we possibly could. Because we're public defenders, we uh, almost all of our clients are in jail instead of prison because they're there pre-conviction. Uh, we sent a memo to the Pima County attorney, Barbara Lawall, and the other community stakeholders uh, a couple weeks ago saying that this was a humanitarian crisis and that we could not wait. We need to get as many people out of pretrial detention as possible. The county attorney responded saying that they agreed in principle to a number of categories of types of crimes that she would consider releasing people who are charged with drug possession, very small scale, uh, drug sales, trafficking in stolen property, that sort of thing. We submitted to her, we had a group of 20 really dedicated, just amazing public defenders and legal defenders work for four days straight, Monday, Monday, into the late into the night on their weekends, volunteering their time. We put together a list of about 145 of our clients that we think should qualify for being released. Out of that list, the county attorney agreed on, I think, 35, which is not nothing. I mean, that's 35 human lives, and that's 35 is better than 34, is better than 10, is better than zero. So I'm very thankful for that. On the other hand, even in this time of, of public health crisis, political crisis, economic crisis, the power structure, particularly prosecutors and police officers, just cannot wrap their heads around this idea that we have far too many people in jails and prisons. And they're still unfortunately resistant to the kind of immediate widespread change that we need to make, not just in the face of COVID-19, but even in the best of times, with the United States being the prison capital of the planet and Arizona having the fourth highest incarceration rate in the world. Kurt, we'll go with you next. Thank you, Joel, by the way. My pleasure. All right, well, thanks to everybody uh, for being here as well, and I appreciate um, the invitation. And I, I think I would echo uh, some of the things that Joel said. You know, my practice is, is a little unique. I was a longtime prosecutor. I'm a criminal defense attorney now. I work with people pre-trial, uh, and I even have clients that are currently incarcerated in the Department of Corrections, some um, post-conviction work that I do. But in addition to that, I work at the legislature and I work with the governor's office in policy when it comes to criminal justice. And what's been going on now, at least from my perspective, is obviously there's a concern out there. And I've had some uh, significant actual back channel discussions with the governor's office about what they're gonna do. There's no easy situation here. A crisis like this is not the time, uh, in my view, there may be some different views, to reinstitute policy changes. I agree with Joel. We have too many people in prison, too many people in jails, and we should change that, but we should change that through the normal policy channels. But what we have to do in something uh, like this is we have to ensure safety first. The goal of this is safety. And if safety means mass releases, then you know maybe it's mass releases. And as Joel said, you know police and prosecutors have to get their head around that. But what we don't wanna do, and I know what the big concern around the country is, is uh, releasing a massive amount of people and putting them really in a worse situation. Not that there could be anything much worse than jail or prison, but I mean, when it comes to the virus and exposing them uh, to the virus in some other fashion, because maybe they don't have anywhere to go. Maybe the system isn't set up for them on the outside. So I really think that's the difficulty and the balance. I know that that's the balance that, that our administration here in Arizona is trying to take. I know that that United States Attorney General ha has tried to strike that balance going, hey, we can't just release people uh, if it's going to be worse for them, but we should release the people that we can. Um, so I think that all the parties are really coming together to try to find the right solution. Uh, the problem is nobody really knows what that is because we really don't know how this virus is working. Certainly people incarcerated are at risk, just like people outside incarceration are at risk. And we need to find that balance um, to get these people at least the high-risk people, you know, the categories, um, out of the jails and prisons, if possible, uh, on some compassionate uh, release sort of uh, system in order to protect them. The goal should be to protect them, put them in the place that they're most likely to, you know, weather the storm. 
Thank you so much. We'll go with Carlos. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start. I, I, I kind of disagree with you, Kurt. I, I think this is the perfect time for us to actually push the boundaries. I think we're in a time where, as we're all put to the question or have death in our face and, and, and we don't know where this virus is going to hit, I think it's striking particular human uh, instincts in all of us to, to try to change things. And I think it's a time to, to really dream big, reflect on how, not just broken, but how, how the racist criminal justice system has been hurting people. And so I think at, at this point, what's keeping me up is the fr frustration that we can't support more folks. Um, I grew up undocumented in Arizona. I've had six people in my family who went through deportation proceedings. Through Puente, I've been working both in, in criminal justice, but mostly in immigrant detention for a long time and have dealt with measles outbreaks, have dealt with, particularly in Eloy, a lot of health risks that, that our members and the undocumented community have gone through. And so I think it's, it's a time where I almost feel frustrated that I can't dream big enough. You know, some of the first things we try to shift is, is try to get a rest down. We've been able to bring those substantially down, like unbelievable. Like we're going from one weekend arresting, our Phoenix Police Department arresting close to 300 people to close to you know 30, 30 to 40 people being arrested the, the last couple of weekends. And so I think this, this hunger that the criminal justice system feeds on is really being challenged right now. Is there really a necessity to lock so many people up? And, and is this a time to actually uh, take that appetite away? I think it is. And, and, and through Puente and, and both through the city council, we've been trying to push as much as possible uh, to get people released. And, but the place I do agree with Kurt is that we're not ready. We're not already able to support people who are being released. And that brings me to the next thing that's been keeping me up is dealing with the population without a home. The people who are either choosing to live in public or who have to live in public, who we were, like the criminal justice system, already not responding in, in, in a humane way, in a way where we were supporting people. All those things are being exacerbated as this crisis hit. And so... We go down to the CAS, uh, which is the central Arizona shelter that hosts the majority of, of people without a home. Um, and you're seeing those folks still continue to be criminalized and not supported like they should be. And so I, I think we're pushing, we're trying to figure out both housing options and less arrest and, and trying to figure out what it is that we can do being in this council office. Um, been there nine months now, and, and so I'm, I'm learning as we go. A big example, something, a policy we pushed from the campaign from even before was the Civilian Review Board for the Phoenix Police Department. That's in danger right now um, because we're going to see major cuts. A lot of the reform, a lot of the work that we've been doing is actually also being threatened right now. And so uh, one of the things I'm, I'm, I've learned or reflected on in the last month is we're actually lacking ideas. We're, we're lacking the ability to frame a world uh, with, without people being incarcerated, without, with people being okay with being released. We're getting pushback in the sense of, of, of safety. And I think our job now, uh, as it's been, is to really look for ways to redefine public safety and try to get people home to their loved ones and, and, and get them safe. Thank you, Councilman. I'm also a, I'm a child of immigrants. So on the immigration front, this has also been a concern for me as well. So thank you for bringing that point up as well. And we'll go to Khalil next, and then Pat, and then we'll go into our questions. Good evening, everyone. Khalil Rashdan with ACLU, and also directly impacted serving time in the system until I was fully exonerated and released in 2011. The problem I have with it, there's, there's several issues, several humanitarian issues for all people confined, period. I address that because being there, seeing things firsthand, you're an afterthought when it comes to healthcare. You know, being on a yard where they've had several outbreaks, you know, when they had the MRSA outbreaks, there was scabby outbreaks, and, 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 and they did a poor job quarantining because, you know, they allowed it to spread to several buildings on the opposite side of the yard. The, the problem with that is when it came down to the situation, it raised a lot of red flags for the ACLU 
especially, you know, around the, the Parsons versus Ryan lawsuit, which has been going on since 2012, showing officials and the public that there is no health care in there. And the settlement was reached in 2014 another and, and 2018. However, they were found in contempt for failing, uh, DOC for failing to reach the agreements that they settled upon, which was just to provide basic health care. So when you look at the history of the Parsons, and even before this lawsuit came about, I was incarcerated in 1997. There's a culture in the prison here to punish people. And when you when you're sick in there, you get injured, you have to pull teeth and threaten people just to get medical attention. So now you get to COVID-19 and you ask what are some of these obstacles that we're seeing? The first or the biggest obstacle and you know I I, I have nothing personal against our governor. I don't know him, and I, I always make that statement. However, he he has the authority to make a decision based on the humanitarian issue or crisis that he could avert. But to go on the news and, and just flat out say, I'm not releasing anybody, to me, that raised a bigger flag. That becomes an obstacle, because now we start to look at this this culture in Arizona, not only to punish people, but not to even talk about issues. You know, there's a separation where, you know, the Republicans or those elected officials, they're supposed to have the mind state that we, we represent everybody. There's no us versus you, especially when it comes down to a, a, a virus that's really killing people. So, you know, I want to get to the second obstacle is a lack of transparency. There shouldn't be walls or, or things that hinder transparency with the public. The third thing, the, the, there was a, a lawsuit filed by the attorneys in the Parsons lawsuit who asked simply for DOC to have a transparent game plan, you know, around this COVID-19. And the problem with that is it seems like our elected officials seem to be reactive instead of being proactive. And when you see several, when you see several other states, several other officials, and even, you know, Attorney General Barr, where, where they made the decision to release people, you know, now it's going to be up to releasing people. However, the decision was made based on the urgency of the issue. You, you know, they're not gonna they're not gonna wait until there's an outbreak and a and a and a spread in the prison. So lastly, I'm getting word that there has been a, a death in Tucson. The individual had pneumonia-like symptoms. And the urgency of, of that transparency or or you know pushing for our officials to be more transparent is like, we don't know what they're gonna put on his death certificate. We've, know, we've known that, um, and I can't confirm this, but there was information put out in news that an officer tested positive in Perryville and in Winslow. So when you think about how this is going to be transmitted into the prisons, and with some of these officials saying, well, they're, they're safer in prison. No, they're not. Because a lot of those guards are probably going to end up bringing it in. And that's where um, one of the whistleblowers went to the news and was talking about the lack of PPE, you know, the protective equipment that they were being told not to put on because it's going to scare the incarcerated population. So... Just with that being said, those those are some of the biggest obstacles that we've been trying to navigate around or eliminate. Thank you, Khalil. And just a quick note, I know Kurt has a class that he has to get to, and we've already, um, it's great that we're already having this wonderful discussion, and Pat still needs to introduce himself a little bit. So maybe, Pat, is it possible if you can touch on what's going on on a national level for about a minute, and then we can dive into at least the first question for Kurt <laughs> before he has to leave? Yeah. Sure. Uh, many of us have been seeking uh, 
an executive order ordering the release of any high-risk non-sex-related offenses. Um, instead, the president chose to have the Attorney General Barr issue his policy, uh, but uh, there's an old Irish saying, uh, they're filling your mouth with an empty spoon. <laughs> and uh, uh, Barr's memos had no impact inside the, the BOP. Uh, they are scoffing at it. One camp administrator said, if you think you're getting out early, you're wrong. Nobody is going home on the first step back, which, of course, we worked so hard to pass. Uh, face it. Uh, you're here, and in our opinion, you're safer here than you are outside. So that was the way. Oh, and she said, and also Barr's uh, memo doesn't give us uh, any direction as to what we're to do. So we're going to wait uh, for, you know, additional instructions. Uh, that's pretty disappointing because it is a crisis. Uh, five federal inmates in a prison in Louisiana have already died. And I think one aspect that uh, we're not facing, but uh, we've been trying to coordinate with some of the uh, unions, this affects uh, correctional officers, too. Uh, and, you know, what happens in prison doesn't stay in prison. Those COs go home to their families at night and uh, to the community. Um, so if they're exposed, you know, uh, it's going to get out. And so we need to take this seriously at the federal level, and we're continuing to press. But uh, so far, uh, the progress uh, has been negligible, frankly. Only 485 federal prisoners have been released under compassionate release. And that's, you know, a, a tiny percentage of those uh, who qualify. I would like to, uh, and I'll, I'll let you get to Kurt, but Khalil made several good points. Number one, there is no medical care inside the federal prisons. Uh, PAs uh, who barely spoke English and what they gave for everything was Motrin. You need Motrin. And we used to laugh and say, if we broke a bone, they'd give us Motrin. That was the extent of uh, medical care. And, uh, and for the COs to be told not to wear uh, protective gear, you know, that's, that's unfair to them and their families, uh, as well as the inmates. And it's impossible inside a facility to practice social distancing. Some of these guys were in uh, dorm squad bays with 50 inmates, all, you know, seven or eight of them are within touching distance. Anyway, uh, there are more points I can make, but uh, yeah, let's get to Kurt and allow him to answer some questions before he goes. Valina, I'm gonna let you uh, take this, the lead on this. If there are any questions you want to ask Kurt before he has to go, go for it. Right. So I was glad that Pat brought up Attorney General Bill Barr's recent authorization to release particularly vulnerable inmates. Now that's federal prisons. Um, Kurt, do you think Arizona officials will authorize compassionate release uh, for state inmates in Arizona? And if so, under what criteria? You know, I hesitate to actually guess on whether it'll happen or not. I do know that there's an examination going on, but you know, this kind of evidence is the problem with government in general, right? Nothing happens fast. And in a situation where things maybe need to move much more quickly, the government still acts like the government and doesn't move that quickly. But I know that um, those discussions are ongoing. They're trying to figure out what the criteria would be to do that, if they were gonna do that, if it becomes, or they believe it's gonna become a crisis. I think what Kileo said earlier uh, about um, reacting rather than being proactive is really important in something like this. But I do know that the discussions that are going on um, kind of revolve around the same criteria that are um, listed in the two memos from uh, the U.S. Attorney General, Mr. Barr. Uh, you know, Arizona is not exactly the same as the federal system, but those criteria uh, lay out what, at least on a federal level, they believe qualifies somebody for these types of early release or at least early release consideration. I was struck, honestly, 
again, by whether, and I think what um, Pat just said, you know, proves it. Like, I don't know how effective this criteria is going to be because there's certain, when I was reading the memo, it certainly seems like there's a lot and it's going to take a lot of oversight and a lot of determination and a lot of time, the way the government moves in order to say, okay, these 400 people can go, as Pat said. So if they do it in Arizona, and certainly they want to um, take a look at significant criteria to evaluate each person, you know, for risk factors and danger to the community outside the risk factors, whatever that may be, but they got to do it and they got to do it fast. Um, I think that was, is the problem with what would you say, Pat, a spoon with nothing on it in your mouth or something like that? Uh, yeah. You know, these memos are certainly uh, encouraging from the Attorney General of the United States, but how effective and practically effective are they going to be? And by the time they get this criteria figured out and the evaluation of these people, is the, is the virus crisis going to be over? Nobody really knows. But I know that in Arizona, they are looking at similar criteria. It won't be exactly the same because it's Arizona, but how fast they can get through those and let people out. You know, I don't know. I, I hesitate to say I'm skeptical, but I'm kind of skeptical. Does anyone else want to touch on this and um, both compassionate release, but the possibility of clemency as well? I just want to say, you know, I agree with Kurt that it, it, it's a long drawn out process. You know, one of the things that you know, our governor has the power to do is issue executive orders. We can start in an area of those individuals that will be released within the next six months. You know, that's a good place to start. Because one way or another, you know, what's six months going to do to, to harm an individual that's going to be released? You know, and I just think that we can start there. We can start to depopulate. But the urgency of it is, is it's you have guys stacked on top of each other. Um, the dormitory setting in in Buckeye, Lewis Complex, Steiner Unit, where I was, those units were only fit for 22 beds. That's that's what they were initially. Prior to my release, they had added eight additional beds. So they started double bunking these, these runs where it was only supposed to be 22. Now you have 30 individuals. And from what I was hearing, there could be more. So the proactiveness is, is to really just say, hey, those individuals who are going to be released anyway within the next six months, let's, let's start coordinating uh, with the community, get them released you know, get them to their families, and we could really fast track those compassionate releases. That can be the governor's compassionate release, issue an executive order. Khalil, I think that's a great point, you know, especially people are within six months of their sentence. I mean, you know, what's the difference? Six months is six months, but they have the ability, ability to get them out. I want to thank everybody. I'm going to jump out. Unfortunately, I got to teach. You guys have a great panel. I'm sorry. I'm going to uh, disappear on you, and I look forward to listening. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you, Kurt. Thank you so much, Kurt, Thank for being you. here. Uh, th this is Pat, and, um, you know, uh, politically, I understand uh, the reluctance uh, of people. Uh, the meme that I'm having the hardest time dealing with are, uh, you know, it's, a, you know, usually have to that uh, why are they letting criminals out while they're closing gun stores? And, you know, that's a, that's an easy statement to make and really can be, uh, you know, throws people off the point. We are not helped, however, by uh, New York City's release of violent prisoners and sex offenders. I think that's what the public is really afraid of. And um, any of these releases, we need to reassure people that they're people that really don't, you know, pose a threat of physical harm. Uh, you know, we've overfilled our prisons with people that we're mad at, but we're not afraid of, you know, the drug, low-level drug crimes and things. And those are the people we should uh, focus most on. Uh, but New York didn't help when they made 
that release. And so politically, I think those of us, uh, you know, working on this need to convince our elected officials that uh, in a case of life and death like this is, the usual six to eight months to work out policy just isn't going to work. You know, uh, I just read that um, uh, one fellow in an Ohio prison was in on a technical violation and died in prison. So that technical violation ended up being a death sentence for him. And I don't think anybody wants that. Uh, And the public is explained that way, that we need to act quickly while protecting the public, but also it's uh, morally unacceptable to expose these people to death for what are relatively, you know, low-level crimes. So that's the political dilemma. And, um, you know, I'm I'm trying to create an atmosphere in which there's – uh, you know, uh, for uh, elected officials that do the courageous thing, but um, but we're fighting an uphill battle on this. Do you all mind if I address that point? No, go on ahead. Thank you. So I I think that's a very good and, and pragmatic point, but I do want to really echo what Councilman Garcia said this entire system has been morally unacceptable for everybody involved, regardless of what they're charged with, whether they're charged with drug possession, whether they're convicted of first degree murder, the system has been morally reprehensible for longer than I think all of us have been alive. And I do agree with the councilman that this is a time and this is a crisis that is really exposing a lot of the contradictions and a lot of the weaknesses of all sorts of systems, of our economic systems, our political systems, and we're here talking about chiefly our our carceral system. And I think that we as as stakeholders, as actors in that system, we really should follow the councilman's advice and see this as truly a revolutionary opportunity. If people shouldn't be in jail now, in prison now because of COVID-19, then they shouldn't have been in jail and prison to begin with. And getting them out because of the epidemic is part one. Making sure that their neighbors and mothers and fathers don't go back after the epidemic over is as critical, if not more critical. And I think that all of us have a moral obligation, all of us stakeholders and system actors, to make sure that this isn't the beginning. This is not even the end of the beginning. This is, this is the beginning of the beginning. You know, I, um, this is Pat again. I, uh, you know, I share your sentiments about the, uh, or strong opinions about the injustices inherent in our system. But as we saw with the first step back, uh, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And a lot of folks fought against the first step act. I was on a panel with a lady who fought against it tooth and nail and uh, was saying the ways it could be improved. But sitting next to her was Matthew Charles, who would have done another 11 years if the First Step Act hadn't passed. So, uh, you you know, (laughs) uh, yeah, in theory, yes, we could have done more. But in reality, the bill would have died and uh, Matthew Charles would still be locked up. And in this case, I think if we try to use this to leverage changes in the whole system, uh, what's going to end up is nobody gets released. And um, and that would be a tragedy. So we've got to deal with political realities. Yes, we need to aspire to uh, change the system. But in this case, I think we'll overplay our hand if we go for that dramatic change because uh, it'll go nowhere uh, politically. That, that's my opinion. I respect you very much for your opinion, sir. And um, it's a dilemma that we face. Um, but uh, I guess my object now is to try to get as many people at risk out of the system as possible. 
I have many opinions, but I don't want to monopolize the conversation. <laughs> I want to, I want to say, you know, I, I totally understand where Carlos and Joe, you know, are, are coming from because, you know, we, we talk about the first step back, but then we also look at how many sentences Obama commuted. We also look at several different earned release credit bills that were put in place. You know, we, we look at this across decades. I, I want to say that all these, all these things only did was dealt with symptoms. It never went to the core. It never resolved anything. It just dealt with symptoms. So when we, when we never applied a solution to the core of the problem, each decade, we start to see policies reenact themselves and start incarcerating more people, confinement. And, and I say this because we don't, you know, most people say they can't stomach immigration. And, and I'm saying, okay, well, how do you not stomach immigration when you're, you're over here advocating against for-profit prisons? You get what I'm saying? And, and what people start to do is start to disconnect themselves based on their own biases. And I'm going to say bias because you don't even have to be racist, but if you can't identify that there's a human confined in one of these cells, just, just at the core, if you can't identify that, then you have a serious bias. You have a bias if you can't put yourself in that individual's shoes. So, you know, I say this because, yeah, right now, we, we need to do what we need to do to get people out. But then we also need to analyze, one, the system, the systemic changes that has to come. It's no us versus you. Uh, because this virus is not going knocking on certain doors. No, it's knocking on everybody's door. But then we need to look down the road, come together as community, eliminate the biases, and separate the politics from the policies that are always hurting our communities. If I could jump in here. Um, I think what's important now, and it's always been important, is and, and I agree, we need to get out whoever we can get out right now. That's always been the case, and that's always been my, my motto. Never for the risk of maybe getting something else, we should not get people out now. But I think there, there is, the process is important, and how we don't throw people away or throw people under the bus or make it harder for others to get out in an attempt to get some out. I, I think there's ways of doing things principally of, of asking or asking or seeing what's politically viable, getting that done, but leaving the door open for us to be able to eventually get more and more out and to shift things. And, I, and I'm saying this now from an elected official, right? I'm, I'm learning in the last year to, to, to change my, my hat and then actually having to deal with death threats on, on, on a weekly basis with people, anytime I speak about this, getting the backlash and saying, we're going to recall you, or we're going to, uh, uh, you know, get you out, whatever the, the threats are. Um, but I think it's important. And, and I think the humanity aspect that Khalil just brought up is, is a moment right now. For the first time, it's not only athletes or, or artists or police officers or firefighters who are heroes. People are looking at everyone as a hero, as the person who helped them at the grocery store, as everyone around us. And so I think that that's the key to be able to tap into people's heartstrings right now and let them know that those that are incarcerated, that those have been put away are human, are and could be those, those that are out here supporting us, helping us, making sure we get out of this. It could be that nurse that's helping you. It could be the bus driver that, that's getting you to the hospital, risking their own life to do that. And so I think that's, that's what I meant about our imagination going further and, and imagining a world where, where, where we change the, the punitive systems we have. Um, and, and again, I'm the first one to get this backlash. I'm the first one, anytime we're pushing for anything, you know, we get the calls, the emails, people showing up to the office yelling at us. And, but I do think that, that this moment is important to, to redefine that public safety and re redefine the humanity of folks. Wow, thank you all. We did not expect to, to have this great of a discussion on Zoom because 
you know, we're not in person at a table and that's how we would usually conduct uh, the podcast episode, but this works so beautifully and it's all because of all of you just discussing this so well together. Uh, so thank you for that. We've already touched on prisoners who don't pose a risk to public safety. So I wanna kind of delve into that. Some experts are urging courts and law enforcement to not incarcerate any person who doesn't pose a risk to public safety. And even the Attorney General Barr advised his federal prosecutors to be mindful that, quote, each time a new person is added to a jail, it presents at least some risk to the personnel who operate that facility and to the people incarcerated, end quote. How could Arizona and even other states reduce the number of pretrial detainees in jail? What does that look like? Less arrests, pretrial releases? If you guys can talk about that, that would be wonderful. Well, I mean, my immediate response is, if somebody doesn't pose a risk to public safety, why are they arrested to begin with? Then, then, then why are they in the system? Then they're committing an offense which offends our religious morals, our, our, our cultural morals, it offends what we think about substance abuse, it offends what we think about sexuality. If they're not hurting anybody, and by that I mean presenting a physical danger or a danger to private property, then we should not be arresting them in the first place. And I think the history of the American carceral system in the last 40 years at least is a history of arresting and incar incarcerating people who should have never been arrested in the first place. I want to say that, you know, it, it's sad because there's beauty in Arizona. However, you know, I still see remnants of the good old boy system. And that part of that good old boy system was our pile and, you know, several others who have this get tough on crime mentality, which really just met more money in their pocket. You, you know, it translates into money down the road. I say this because, you, you know, any amount of marijuana, if you don't have a card in, in, in Arizona, it's class six felony. That can get you two years in prison. You know, I'm a, I'm a super part-time case manager and you know, I mentor and help people coming out to, to, to reestablish themselves. Now, in order to get them employed, I have to look at what they were charged with. And I, and I kid you not, when I see people doing almost a year and a half in prison for having a pack of rolling papers, it, 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 it really brings tears to my eyes. You know, that, that becomes, that's the problem. You know, you're sending people to prison for, for you know, in other states, what are misdemeanors or what is not even considered a crime. So, you know, that's where the overpopulation comes. That's where those policy changes have to happen. And I really, I really hope that moving forward, this opens people's eyes like, was discussed earlier to really look at those to start right there you know start right there and then we we can build relationships to get into the the the, the tougher conversations but you know we shouldn't be down in people who are incarcerated we shouldn't be looking at them as second-class citizens or, or or to that nature because one of the other things quoted from Ducey in his press conference was he said, we're gonna protect citizens and those incarcerated. So there was a separation. You get what I'm saying? And, and you know, that right there has to be flagged because that goes back to that mind state of the good old boy system. That's, that's always been in play out here. Well, if I can follow up on that, Khalil, um, we do have four Arizona counties that have been releasing people from jails through the sheriffs. So that's Pima, that's Maricopa, that's Coconino, and that's Graham. And we've actually seen Graham County has reduced its jail population by about 25%. Coconino has released over 100 people. Um, these are predominantly pretrial people. They're all people who are in the jail because under state statute, county sheriffs can place them in home detention. 
uh, rather than jail for misdemeanors. Um, so I'm wondering from the councilman and also from um, the public defender, if you're seeing partnerships between sheriffs, county attorneys, city councils uh, on shifting people to home confinement instead of jail. Um, so we, we, have, we, don't, we haven't dealt with the home confinement issue. We've just simply instructed officers to arrest less people. And we're down 70, 80%. And for the last three weeks, as far as I know, beyond COVID, nothing's really happened, right? For the last three weeks in the city of Phoenix, fifth largest city in the country, we've arrested 70, 80% less people. And whether for whatever it was that kept those folks from entering the system or getting a second uh, or third or fourth hit on, on the record. And so our, our courts have shifted the way they're doing things. And again, I think this could be the new normal where it starts getting tricky. And, you know, I think Penzone and, and the sheriff, the Maricopa County Sheriff have released some people, but then I saw a post on their Facebook yesterday uh, boasting about uh, arresting people on marijuana charges. So kind of trying to balance out and trying to appease those that might be afraid because some people are being released. And so I, I think that's where we need to kind of strike and, and, and figure out ways in which we're, we don't, a lot of times we start arguing with ourselves or we, we start conciding our own, our own arguments. We start fighting ourselves instead of just letting things go and seeing how they play out. Um, and so I, I, I've been ecstatic that the, the numbers that, that the chief has been sharing with us of, of the people that are, are being released. But I also know that we're the largest contract holder with the sheriff. And so for the last couple of years, um, and then in, while I've been off is we've been pushing for a video court system so that um, people specifically with misdemeanors are released from the jails themselves. So in Maricopa County, the arresting agency arrests you and then they put you in the county jail and then they process you. And the biggest pushback has been from the county jail because they rely on that income. They basically charge us like hotels. They charge the cities per person that comes into their county jail. And so I think a lot has to do with the budgets of, uh, especially in here in Maricopa County, we've seen the new jail what, that was ready to open next month. What's gonna happen to that? Why were those decisions made and what was feeding the, the need, the supposed need that we're now seeing wasn't there to build more and more into the system? And so I think those are questions we're contending with now and that I hope we could deal with head on, especially at a time where I think our, val our values may not align, but because the budgets are going to be hit so hard, there is going to be a place where we come together where there's gonna be people who otherwise wouldn't release people who are not gonna have the money to lock everyone up like they were before. And so how can we kind of, we might not be aligning on the reason why someone should be out, but the reality of us not having the money to do so might allow us to push some space in this area. In Pima County, we really haven't seen any move towards home detention or GPS monitoring in the last couple of weeks or months. There's always been sort of a push to get more of it in place, certainly if the alternative is physical incarceration. Uh, COVID-19, though, hasn't sped up that process at all. I am very, very worried about the more general nationwide trend there. Now, I, I do agree with Pat. I think it's very important that we not be paternalistic and I not try and project my own biases onto my clients. If I were to ask, you know, the 1,500 people represented by my office right now, would you rather be in jail or home detention? Every single one is going to say home detention. Sign me up for that ankle monitor. And so my own objections to home detention and surveillance shouldn't prevent my clients from benefiting from that, you know, along with Pat's idea, everyone free is one person free. On the other hand, I do have serious reservations about switching from physical confinement to home detention, because we go back to that question of, if you're not a threat to public safety, then why are you in the system to begin with? Why are you, why is your freedom being limited at all? And I wouldn't want to see a substitute 
you know, at Pima County, 2,000 people in jail for 2,000 people under home detention. I'm not sure that that is a trade-off that's good for our communities or our constitution. So we've talked about some of the grand issues going on with COVID-19 in prisons and jails and what that means moving forward and that there's an opportunity to patch up a system that has cracks in it um, that we've discussed here today. There is one thing I'd like to mention about what's going on in New York. The issue wasn't just that there are no tests available and we understand that that's been a widespread issue to everyone, but it was the fact that there are no, there's no way to test on site in prisons. And I find that catastrophic, that there is no way to get any testing done of any sort. And that goes back to what Khalil was saying that medical care and healthcare is just, it, it, it's just not accessible to uh, people who are incarcerated. And that's a grand issue. And I'm wondering, are, is there anything being done right now? Um, any talks of changing that moving forward? Will there be testing sites inside prison so that someone wouldn't have to go and transport a prisoner to the hospital and hospitals are already overcrowded. So I think this really points to an issue and shows that we're behind in many ways that this should have been an availability well before this pandemic. So one of the things that that came out of the lawsuit was, uh, you know, the, the Parsons attorneys, they had filed that emergency motion uh, about mid-March related to COVID-19, asking the courts to direct DOC to provide a detailed plan about how they will respond to COVID-19. And the court dec declined the motion um, saying it didn't have the jur jurisdiction in the matter. You know, and then we, we just have to look at, before we even get to the prisons, who's getting the test out here? And it seems to me that the first, when this first started, it seemed like all the people who had wealth were getting, or they had access to these tests. You know, one of the things that I was hearing how they were testing or, or when they would test for everybody else was they would go in, they would test you for influenza A and B. If those showed up negative, they would do chest x-rays. And from there, you know, I guess they would make this decision to, to do testing. Now, I bring that up because DOC said it tested 39 or 34 people. Uh, 29 of those individuals were tested negative and five of them are still waiting. So I'm, I'm wondering like, where did they get these tests from? You, you get what I'm saying? And how did, how is the testing being conducted? Because we know that if, if 5,000 tests come to Arizona, their first mind state is not to take, oh, well, hey, let's separate 500 of those and send them to the prison. That, that's just never been the, the mind state of Arizona. So the Parsons attorney, uh, Kareen Kendricks, she filed a motion, another motion, I think it was last week, asking for uh, DOC to provide those, the names of those individuals who had been tested, which it's part of the settlement agreement that these Parsons attorneys actually have uh, access to these medical records. Well, DOC fought that. And, and you know, that, that right there raised another flag because I'm telling you, if, if, I'm, an, if I'm an elected official, if I'm Ducey or if I'm Director Shin of the prison, knowing what I'm sitting on, I'm, I'm sitting on a powder keg. I'm asking for everybody. I don't care who you are. I'm asking for all assistance, you know, and all expertise to come in. I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to be working with people so we can divert this. You know, I'm not going to double down and, and, and hold this issue close to my chest because that right there will put you on a, on, it will increase the chances that you do have an outbreak in your system, being stubborn. 
we're running out of time. So I want to end on a beacon of hope, if there is any, if you guys can give us any uh, behind the scenes movement and progress that's happening before we end today's roundtable discussion, that would be great. Anything that we're moving towards that that's going to be helpful moving forward. I don't know if there is any. I, I think there really is hope. In fact, I was in a meeting at three o'clock this afternoon with you know, presiding judge of Superior Court, high-ranking police officers and sheriff's deputies, uh, chief deputy of the county attorney's office, and they're recognizing that they're doing things differently. We're arresting less people. We have less people in jail, and the sky isn't falling down. That was actually a direct quote from a, from a sheriff's deputy. We're arresting less people. We're citing and releasing instead of taking people to jail. And it turns out that the sky isn't falling down, that there is no dramatic uptick in violent crime. There's no dramatic uptick in all sorts of different metrics. So I think hopefully, optimistically speaking, people's perception has changed. We do not need mass incarceration. We don't need over-policing. We don't need this racist carceral state that we've been plagued with for at least 40 years. Even the people who are the most philosophically and economically invested in that idea, we are living through the hours in which their insistence on the validity of that idea is being shaken. And I think that that's a source of incredible optimism and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, thank you so much. If anyone else has anything they wanna say before we make our exit. I, I wanna agree 100% with that. And, and I think we're, again, these challenges and anytime, you know, we're, we're learning lessons. And, and I think everyone's gonna see who was there, who showed up. Elected officials, including myself, are being tested because people's lives are in our hands. And again, it's, it's an opportunity to, to kind of start over. We're gonna lose people. A lot of people are sick. This, these are devastating times. I don't wanna act like it's all, it's all great. But I do see hope in that people are gonna reconnect with their humanity because they're being challenged with this. They might be losing loved ones. And, and I think we need to just go, go in on it, lean in on, on this opportunity to reshape the way we think about things. Um, again, that exact same quote was, was given to, to me by, uh, by police officers here and, and the chiefs saying the skies are falling, we're okay without locking people up. And if we could continue that, uh, once we get out of this crisis, I, th I think we're going to be in a better place. And, it, and the fruit of a lot of labor from Pat to everybody who's on the call and everybody who's been working to get people out of the cages is hopefully going to give a lot more fruit than it has been given, even in a place like Arizona. And Pat, um, do you have anything to share that you think is hopeful or optimistic on the national level? Uh, yes, I've been working uh, especially hard with uh, some religious leaders and um, their uh, congregants who are uh, prominent uh, members of the uh, NBA, the NFL, and MLB. And they're trying to put together a, a plea uh, for President Trump to intervene, not wait for the bureaucracy to turn through the gears and i think um, these are people that uh, have great influence i uh, i just pray that uh, uh, that they are able to get through to the president and i'm doing all i can to make sure they do but uh, i don't set his schedule but uh, i th i think that would be very helpful uh, you know so far we've been fighting this battle w without a lot of uh, prominent people just doing it on the basis of what's morally right. Uh, but uh, these folks not only are with us because it's morally right, but um, because they have lots of followers who um, believe in them. So that, that's our hope. That's our, our next step uh, on this. Thank you, Pat. And I saw that uh, Pope Francis even commented on this and to, uh, in his words, pray for those who are responsible and for those who need to make decisions in this area, that they may find mm -hmm. a correct and creative way to resolve the problem. Um, so thank you for bringing up 
faith-based organizations and leaders as well. And I will turn this over to Amina to conclude. Yes, thank you for sitting here today with us and giving us some of your time and expertise. It's much appreciated and um, I know it was short notice, so I can't thank you all enough. Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for sponsoring this, it's very important.